Great, thanks. G'day, I'm Charles, one of the pastors here at Grace City. Uh, today is our last week in our series, Hashtags, Questioning the Claims of Cultural Orthodoxy. It's been a big one, hasn't it? Uh, some really complex issues. Uh, but today's topic is a little bit different to the others in the series. See, most of the other topics in this series have really been focusing in on issues of personal identity, uh, things like uh, gender, race or sexuality. Uh, but today's topic is a little different. Uh, today we're talking about the planet as a whole. Uh, we are talking about climate change. And specifically, we're looking at it through the lens of the hashtag, Save the Planet. And while this topic is less about personal identity, it is no less charged, uh, contentious or complex. Uh, so with that said, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious word given to us in the scriptures. And we pray that as we come to hear you speak, you would be at work in us by your spirit, teaching us to listen. Father, shape us, mould us, and transform us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, right from the get-go, I want to start by distinguishing between the specific issue of climate change uh, and the broader category of environmental issues, uh, which includes a whole bunch of things that might not necessarily be related to the specific issue of climate change. Um, you know, there's uh, issues around the ethical treatment of animals, um, questions around should we be using free-range eggs, uh, or there's the issue of reducing waste uh, and single-use plastics, uh, and so this is where things like keep cups come in, um, paper straws, uh, or my favourite, the cardboard bread clip. How good. I love it. Um, these issues are what we might call broader environmental issues. And while a lot of what we talk about today will be relevant to those issues, we are going to focus more specifically on the issue of climate change. And the reason why is because climate change is really the pointy end of all these environmental issues. Uh, this issue has really gained a lot of attention and debate, uh, particularly over the last few years. And while I'm not a scientist, it's probably helpful for us to just start by exploring some of the basic science behind climate change, just so that we all know what we're talking about when we talk about it. Uh, if you're interested, uh, one of the best places to go in terms of the science is a place called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, last year, they published a report on the science behind climate change, uh, in the process, they surveyed over 14,000 peer-reviewed papers and they summarised it all into a document that is over 3,900 pages long. Uh, thankfully for the rest of us, they also did a summary of their summary uh, and that is just 32 pages. Um, I'd recommend having a look at it. Um, it's pretty readable. Uh, it covers all the basics. Um, that's what it is. But when it comes to climate change... The key issue is really the fact that our planet is getting hotter. Uh, it's virtually uncontested that there has been a rapid increase uh, in the surface temperature of the planet, and there's little debate that we have caused this. Uh, just to give you some idea of this, this is a graph from the IPCC. 
uh, and it's, it tracks the planet's surface temperature over the last 2,000 years. And you'll notice that over the last uh, 150 years or so, there's been a massive and rapid increase in surface temperature. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this one just shows you the last 170 years, uh, and it shows our temperature compared to what we think it should be uh, down the bottom. And it's virtually uncontested that this rapid increase in temperature has mainly been driven by the emission of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. Uh, they essentially wrap the Earth in an extra layer of atmosphere, which kind of keeps the heat in. Uh, kind of like if somebody came and put a blanket on you, an extra blanket while you were sleeping. Uh, the primary driver of these emissions is the burning of fossil fuels. And what's more is that it's pretty clear that all of this will have some pretty significant implications. Uh, some of these are pretty straightforward, like rising sea levels due to melting of ice. But it also includes things like um, heat waves, um, heavy rain, droughts and fires. And while climate change doesn't directly cause those extreme weather conditions, the science does make it pretty clear that those naturally occurring events will not only become more frequent, but also more intense. And it's also worth saying that all these things disproportionately impact disadvantaged people. Which means that this is not just an issue of caring for the environment, but also one of loving our neighbour. But having said all of that, there are also a bunch of issues that are still being debated today, particularly around how severe some of these implications might actually be and how worried we should be in response to that. Um, there's also a lot of debate around which are the best solutions for tackling climate change. Uh, questions like, will this work? Will it be affordable? But amidst all these debates is also a huge amount of emotion and disagreement. Uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, she's perhaps one of the most uh, well-known climate activists out there, and in 2019, she was 16 years old, uh, she delivered a speech to world leaders at the UN Climate Action Summit, and this is what she said. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? That's a pretty emotionally charged statement. Um, it captures pretty well the kind of thinking that sits below the hashtag Save the Planet. I can imagine that even uh, amongst us here at Grace City, there's going to be a pretty widespread of reactions to what Greta says there. But on the flip side, there's somebody like Michael Schellenberger, and he thinks that this kind of alarmism is not only unwarranted, it's actually dangerous. Uh, he himself is a climate activist, uh, and have a listen to what he says. On behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to formally apologise for the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening, is just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. 
Now, it's not my job to decide who's right and who's wrong. The reason I share these examples is just to give us an idea of the kind of things that are at stake when it comes to this issue. Uh, this issue is big, it's complex, um, there's emotion, and there is a lot at stake. But today's talk is not about politics, although what we might say might have some political implications. Uh, neither is this talk about science, uh, which is a good thing, because my science qualifications are limited to half a semester of first-year psychology in an arts degree. Today, I want to answer one simple question. Is Christianity part of the problem, or can it actually show us the way towards a solution? Is Christianity part of the problem, or can it show us to a solution? Now, that might sound like a bit of an odd question at first, but for one historian called Lynn White, Christianity is fundamentally responsible when it comes to climate change. Uh, back in 1967, Lynn White, he wrote a, a, an article called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. He published it in the prestigious journal called Science. And in it, he claims that Christianity bears, and I quote, a huge burden of guilt when it comes to climate change. Now, why does he say that? Well, according to him, Christians believe that um, uh, humans are fundamentally superior to creation and that creation doesn't have any purpose except to serve man, uh, which leads to the idea that we can do whatever we like with it. Uh, this is how he concludes. We shall continue to have a worsening e ecologic crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Now, I'm sure that uh, some of uh, Lynn's criticisms are true for some Christians out there. But is what he says true of real, authentic, biblical Christianity? Is that what the Bible teaches? Uh, could it be that Lynn White is actually reacting to a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches? Uh, what if when we went back to the Bible, we actually discovered that Christianity is not only not to blame for climate change, but that it can actually show us the way forwards to a life-giving solution. Uh, today, that's what I want to convince you of. Uh, I want to show you that the Bible not only gives us a realistic explanation of why things are the way they are, but that it also gives us hope for the future and empowers us for practical next steps in the present. I want to do that by exploring four biblical principles together, and then we'll think about some practical next steps. So four biblical principles, I'll just give them to you as we go, and then some practical next steps. The first biblical principle is really about the goodness of creation. The goodness of creation. See, from the very first page of the Bible... The goodness of creation is affirmed. We see it repeated six times in Genesis 1 that God saw what he had made and it was good. And it's not as if he discovered that it was good, as if he didn't know already. 
No, it's that he was enjoying its goodness. Uh, kind of like a, a, a brilliant artist who steps back from their work to marvel at what they have made. And it's important to notice that he saw the goodness of creation before he made humanity. Before there were any humans, God had already witnessed the goodness of creation. Now, can you see what that means? It means that creation doesn't just get its value from what it can do for humanity. Creation is in and of itself good and valuable. Uh, This is the kind of thing where philosophers distinguish between instrumental and inherent value. If something has instrumental value, then it's really only valuable as a means to an end. But if something has inherent value, then it is valuable as an end in itself. And what we learn from Genesis 1 is that the created environment not only has instrumental value, it also has inherent value in and of itself. And what we see throughout the whole Bible is that even in places where no human has set foot, God is there, delighting in uh, and intimately involved with his creation. Have a look at what God says to Job in Job 39. He asks Job, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? And presumably the answer is, No, Job has no idea when the mountain goat gives birth, but God does. He is there and he watches over the birth of every fawn. Or have a look at Psalm 65, 9. It's speaking of God, it says, You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water. And can you see the picture we're starting to build up here? It's the picture of a good and kind God who delights in the natural world and is intimately involved with it. God is more invested in the beauty and goodness of this world than any human could ever hope to be. He's like a glorious and a mighty gardener or a zookeeper who tends lovingly to his creation. And in response, the created world cries out back in praise to God. Have a look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And all of this is before we've even said a word about humanity. See, creation doesn't just get its value from from what it can do for us. There is actually an inherent goodness to it. And can you see how what the Bible says is actually quite different from the version of Christianity that Lynn White attacks in his article? Um, According to him, Christians believe that nature only exists to serve us. But can you see how the Bible actually paints a far more beautiful and a richer picture of a creation that doesn't only have instrumental, but also an inherent value and goodness? And can you see the implications of such a high view of the natural world? It should lead us to great reverence and care for the environment. 
Um, our relationship to creation should be shaped and informed by God's relation to it, His delight and care for it. And when compared to atheism or even other world religions, authentic biblical Christianity should actually lead us to a far higher regard for the environment. See, think with me. Uh, Many world religions uh, out there, they see the physical world as something to be escaped from, something to break free from. Uh, It's true for religions like Hinduism or Buddhism. Uh, But can you see the implications of that? It turns the natural world into something negative, something debased. Or even think with me about atheism. Atheism sees that this, um, this physical universe is nothing more than the product of random chance. Which means that, at best, this creation only has instrumental value. It's simply the place we call home, so we should probably look after it. But it doesn't have any inherent value. But it's only when we see the genius of the artist behind creation that we can actually see the inherent value in creation. Think with me about this painting. By itself, this looks totally random, as if a paint factory just exploded onto a canvas. Um, I think my kids sometimes do drawings that look a little like this. Uh, But this painting is actually worth something around $140 million. Uh, It is number five by Jackson Pollock. And it's only when you actually get up close to it, which I haven't done, but I can peer at my screen on the computer. It's only when you get up close that you can actually see the detail and the intention behind every drip of paint. And when you see the genius of the artist behind the painting, you start to see the incredible value in the painting. And it's the same for creation. It might look totally random, like a product of random chance, but when you see the genius behind it, well, it's only then that you start to appreciate the inherent goodness within creation. Can you see how biblical Christianity should actually lead us to a far greater care for the environment when compared to atheism or even other world religions? So let me ask you, do you care about the environment? Do you value it like God does? Or do you see it as simply a means to an end, as something that only exists to serve us? The first principle Uh, of biblical Christianity when it comes to climate change is to recognise the goodness of creation. The second principle is around the role of humanity. The role of humanity. Because if you go to Genesis, um, despite the inherent goodness of creation, uh, there was still something kind of incomplete or unfinished about creation until God made humanity. Humanity actually comes as the high point and the climax of the creation account in Genesis. And it's only then does God look at all that he had made, both the natural world and humanity, and then he declares that it was very good. And what we see is that God actually places humanity over creation to rule over it, and to subdue it. Have a look with me at Genesis 1.28. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Can you see how there's a distinct order in creation? Going from the natural world of plants and animals with humanity ruling over it and God in turn ruling over humanity. There's an order there. World, humanity, God. But that leads us to an important question around what does it actually mean for humanity to have dominion, to rule over creation? Um, the word rule in Hebrew uh, it has quite a range of meanings. Um, the word for rule, it can refer to how a tyrant rules over people, oppressing them. You know, is that what it means for humanity to rule over creation, dominating it? Um, perhaps that's where Lynn White got his ideas about Christianity from. But the Hebrew word for rule, radar, it can also refer to how a good king rules over a nation, leading it to flourish and to grow. And so which is it? What does it mean for us to rule over creation? Well, I think we actually get the answer in the very next chapter of Genesis. And God explains what it means for Adam to rule over the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's two things to pay attention to. Let's have a read. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Did you notice those two things? The first instruction is for Adam to work the garden, which means that he was meant to be more than just a park ranger. More than a park ranger. Um, if Adam had simply left the garden as he'd found it and left it untouched, he would have actually failed in his duty to work the garden. Um, his job was actually to landscape and to bring beauty out of the garden, to develop it. Which I take it means that creation actually needs humanity to reach its full potential. Have you ever noticed in Genesis 2.5, before the creation of humanity, um, it says no plants had appeared on the earth, in part because there was no one to work it. Um, have a look with me. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Can you see the implications? Cre creation actually needs humanity to reach its full potential, which means that we are meant to be more than just park rangers who leave it as we found it and leave it untouched. No, we're, we're actually meant to develop it, um, to create new things and to bring beauty out of it. It means things like cities, towns, harbours, tunnels. Um, these are all part of what it means for us to have dominion over the natural world. But there's also a second instruction given to Adam. It's the instruction to take care of it. Or in other translations, to keep it or to preserve it. Which means that abusing and destroying the natural world around us is actually antithetical to biblical Christianity. 
Uh, Creation is not ours to do whatever we want with it. Uh, We have been charged by God to take care of it and to preserve it. And when you put these two things together, um, to work and to take care of it, I think you actually end up with a concept that's not too far off the idea of sustainable development. See, we are meant to develop the natural world and build upon it, but not to the detriment of keeping and preserving it. We're meant to develop sustainably. In other words, we are meant to steward creation. Steward, 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 (laughs) steward creation. Uh, We're meant to rule over creation. It's not ours to do whatever we want with. This world belongs to God and he cares about what happens to it. But he has given us the responsibility of working and taking care care of it. This is actually what we see play out in the commands of the Old Testament. So let me show you just three. Uh, Deuteronomy 25.4 Do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, ancient agrarian societies, they would use an ox to tread out grain in the process of making flour. And if you don't muzzle the ox, well, it's going to eat some of the grain along the way. But by muzzling the ox, you stop it from eating that grain and you increase your profits. But notice the command here is to not muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. Let it eat some of the grain. Why? Because it was wrong for Israel to be profit-driven to an animal's detriment. It's actually appropriate that a certain level of cost be built into the whole process to account for the animal's welfare. Have a look at Proverbs 12.10. It says, The righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Uh, Did you catch that? Caring for animals, your animals, pets... (laughs) That is bound up with what it means to live a righteous life. And notice these are moral categories. Uh, To disregard the life of an animal is not just foolish, it's actually wicked and sinful. How we treat animals is a matter of either righteousness or evil. But it's not just true for animals. It's also true for plants and trees. Uh, For this, I've got one more passage. A heads up. Um, This passage is going to talk about laying siege to another city, uh, which kind of deserves a sermon in its own right. So if you can look past the whole laying siege thing, I think there's actually something really interesting to learn about trees. So roll with me. Deuteronomy 2019. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. And I love this. Are trees people that you should besiege them? (laughs) However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. But did you notice? God actually cares about the trees in a foreign land. And it's actually wrong to needlessly cut them down. 
Now, it's not wrong to cut down a tree under certain circumstances, but cutting down a tree is not an amoral thing to do. And while these commands were given to Israel in their own context, these commands actually reveal God's unchanging values and morals. And what we see is that God cares about the environment and he has given humanity the responsibility of ruling over creation, which means both working and taking care of it. And this is a moral issue. It's an issue of either righteousness or wickedness. That's the second biblical principle we need to appreciate, the role of humanity. But the third is around the impacts of sin. The impacts of sin. See, when it comes to sin, um, we often, and actually rightly, focus on both humanity's culpability for sin and sin's consequences for humanity. But even right from the very beginning in Genesis 3, um, we see that the natural environment is actually caught up with humanity's sin, and it's corrupted and cursed as a result. Have a look with me from Genesis 3. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Um, and did you notice that? The ground is actually cursed and now produces thorns and thistles as a result of humanity's sin. Um, our sin has actually corrupted the natural world and left it broken. And as a result, there's actually now a kind of cruelty and a chaos that has worked its way through creation. Let me give you just one example of someone who has tried to come to, ter uh, tried to, come to terms with this. Annie Dillard. Um, she's an author of a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Uh, that book won a Pulitzer Prize back in 1975. And in the book, she describes how she moved out to the woods of Virginia to live by a creek. And she went so that she could be closer to nature, to learn from it, um, and to bathe in its peace. But when she gets out there and she starts to observe the natural world, she actually starts to become sickened by the violence and cruelty of nature. Uh, pretty early on in the book, she describes, um, she watched a giant water bug grab a frog, inject poison into it so that it melts its insides, and then proceeded to suck its brains out, leaving only the skin. Her conclusion is that this world is a cruel and a heartless, it's a rough place to be. And while there is beauty in nature, its beauty is like images of roses painted in blood. The Apostle Paul, he actually picks up on all of this in Romans 8, uh, which we read together earlier. Uh, we'll come back to this passage in just a moment. But for now, notice how Paul talks about the impacts of sin upon the natural world. He says, The creation was subjected to frustration, not, uh, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Can you see how under the sovereign hand of God, humanity's sin has actually corrupted creation and left it groaning? But how does knowing all this actually help us when it comes to the issue of climate change? Here's how. The Bible shows us that the the problem of climate change is not fundamentally a problem to do with science or technology or even politics. Climate change is fundamentally a problem to do with the human heart. It is our own greed, our lust for gain at all costs that has corrupted and degraded our world, which is true regardless of where we fall on the details of climate change. Um, The roots of the problem can be traced all the way back to what's inside each of us, uh, both you and me. Which means that while science, technology and politics, they're all important, they're going to be part of the solution, but they are ultimately inadequate if they can't address the root of the problem, which is the human heart. But I said at the start... I don't just want to give us a realistic explanation of why things are the way they are. I also want to show us how the Bible can actually give us hope for the future. That leads us to the fourth and final biblical principle, the promise of renewal. Come back with me to Romans 8, but this time pay attention to the great promise of freedom and renewal from verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And can you see here the promise of freedom, not just for the children of God, but for the entire cosmos? It's a promise of renewal. And did you notice the language of childbirth there at the end? Um, Childbirth is painful. Uh, I have seen a few. It looks painful. Um, But, Childbirth leads to the creation of a beautiful new life. And the hope of the Bible is that one day God will renew all of creation, transforming this broken and corrupted wasteland into a beautiful new reality. But here's where we also need to stop and address a bit of an elephant in the room. See, throughout this whole series, uh, we've been asking you to let us know what questions you have. And out of all the topics we've covered, with over 190 questions submitted, this was the question with the most upvotes. I've heard Christians say they're not concerned about the planet because Jesus is coming back soon. But man was made custodian of creation. Shouldn't we care? Now, at one level, uh, we've already answered this question. Yes, Humanity was given the responsibility of stewarding creation, which means that, yes, we should care. But I think there's actually a little more going on behind this question. 
Uh, what it's picking up on is the fact that some Christians seem to go from believing in the promise of a new creation to thinking that should lead us to care less about the environment. Almost as if to say, ah, well, it's all going to burn anyway. Why bother? But is that right? Is that real, authentic, biblical Christianity? Or is that a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches? I actually think that that kind of mindset is far less reflective of biblical Christianity and far more reflective of a heresy that was popular around the time of Jesus called Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism taught that when a person dies, um, their inner spiritual spark leaves this physical world and ascends on up into a spiritual realm. It's a vision of being released and breaking free from uh, from physical matter. But the Bible actually gives us a radically different picture when it comes to the hope of a renewed creation. The Bible doesn't so much say that we will leave this world and go up to be with God, at least not in the new creation. It actually says that He will come down to us and in doing so bring renewal. Uh, Have a look with me at Revelation 21. As we read this, pay attention to which direction things move in. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, it does say that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But the new earth won't be new in the sense of being totally different, but in the sense of being renewed and perfected. God has actually committed himself to a physical environment. And the reason we know this is because when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised with a physical body. Uh, One that in some sense belongs to this creation, but also in another sense is glorified and perfected. And he continues to live and breathe in that body even now. So what's the point? When God comes and remakes the heavens and the earth, I take it that we will be in a creation. A bit like this one, but that we will care for it perfectly. Which means that caring for creation is not something that we will stop doing in the new creation, but something that we will do perfectly, both working and taking care of it. So should a belief in the new creation lead us to care less about the environment? I think the Bible actually leads us to care more about the environment in light of the new creation, not less. That's the fourth and final biblical principle when it comes to climate change, the promise of renewal. But now with the rest of our time, 
I just want to spend a few moments exploring some practical implications from all of this. I want to start by asking you this question. Do you think that creation care, caring for the natural world, do you think that's part of Christian discipleship? Is that part of what it means to be a mature Christian? Now, nobody's saying that it's the sum total of discipleship. Uh, there'd be very few people who would say that this issue lies right at the heart of Christian discipleship. I'm certainly not saying that. But is it part of our discipleship? And if it is, could it be that this is actually a bit of a blind spot for us? The evangelical preacher and theologian John Stott, he certainly thought so. Uh, in his last book called The Radical Disciple, um, it was released only a year before his death, um, he outlined what he thought were eight neglected areas of discipleship, one of which was creation care. And in his book, he argues that Christians should care for and respect the environment for three reasons. Because God made it, because he entrusted mankind with its care, and because it's part of our duty to love our neighbour. And then he concludes with this stinging rebuke. It seems quite inexplicable to me that there are some Christians who claim to love and worship God, to be disciples of Jesus, and yet have no concern for the earth that bears his stamp of ownership. They do not care about the abuse of the earth, and indeed, by their wasteful and overconsumptive lifestyles, they contribute to it. How's that for a Sunday morning? But here's why I think he's right when he says that creation care is actually part of Christian discipleship. Because as we've seen time and time again in the scriptures, caring for the environment is not simply a pragmatic category. It's a moral category. And what we do is either a matter of righteousness or wickedness. So what does that mean? Well, for one, I think it means that we should do what we can. Do what we can when it comes to caring for creation, uh, both in terms of reducing our carbon footprint when it comes to climate change, uh, but also for the broader category of environmental issues. And as a matter of wisdom, start with the things that make the biggest difference. It's true, we can't do everything. And neither is it my job to explain exactly how to care for creation. Uh, my job is simply to explain why and to show that it's biblical. But here's where we also start to run into another roadblock, which is the fact that all of this can just start to feel so pointless when we consider the fact that our personal efforts seem to have next to no impact on a global scale. Um, I love this question from the Slido. Why should I have to use a reusable cup when a one-hour flight is equivalent to me using about 2,270 disposable cups, about seven years' worth? I have no idea if that's true or not. <laughs> but it raises the question, why bother taking a reusable cup if it makes basically no difference anyway? What if we started thinking and counting um, our actions not in terms of their global impact, but in terms of a personal obedience 
to a personal God. Have a listen to what biblical scholar Lionel Windsor says about composting. Is the purpose of our compost heap to save the world? That would be arrogance, not to mention dumb. Thinking that we can somehow save the world from its death sentence through our compost heap would be far worse than not having a compost heap at all. But he goes on. But if our compost heap is an act done for the sake of the Lord Jesus, an act that affirms the purpose of the earth that God has made and Jesus owns, an act that contributes to our God-given rule of the world that he has entrusted to us, an act of love for other human beings so that they can enjoy the land in other ways, an act to help stop the land being filled up with my landfill that we couldn't be bothered to cut down on because we were too lazy, then we are doing something that matters eternally. It's not the compost heap itself that matters eternally. Rather, it's the act of love and the relationship with God and others that the act expresses. But all of this is pointless and powerless if we don't talk about God's ultimate solution to the problem of the human heart. Because remember, climate change is not fundamentally a problem of science, technology or politics. Climate change is a problem that is caused by corrupt and sinful human hearts. We are the problem. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God has done something profound that has the power to heal a human heart. We can actually explain it with four trees. See, in the Garden of Eden, God took Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden to work it and to keep it. And at the center of the garden was the tree of life. It's Genesis 2. That's God's good purposes for this world. But when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, they ate from a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in so doing, they set in motion the corruption of the entire natural world. But then came another man, Jesus Christ, God himself, and his life was also defined by a tree. But instead of eating from this tree, he died on it. He died on a tree to take away the sin that has corrupted this world. Um, did you know 1 Peter 2.24? It literally says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. And he did this so that he could bring us to a fourth tree. In the new creation, right at the center of the city of God, will stand a tree. And in the book of Revelation, it says that the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Grace City, don't be an environmentalist. Be a Christian. Because if you can start with the man who can heal your heart, the rest will fall into place. Just as I close, um, I heard a story recently uh, about a dad who was super busy and he needed to give his daughter something, uh, he needed to occupy her in some way. And so he flicked through a magazine and he found a picture of a world map. 
And so he took it and he cut it up into jigsaw pieces and gave it to his daughter thinking that it would take her a very long time to do because there's a lot of water. But then to his surprise, she came back really quickly and he asked her, how, how did you do it? And she said to him, well, I started with a map and it was really tricky. But then I saw that there was a picture of a man and a woman on the other side. And once I put that together, well, the rest fell into place. Grace City, climate change is a really tricky topic. But in the gospel, God has done something to address the root of the problem, um, the human heart. And what we find in authentic biblical Christianity is something that can actually show us the way forward towards life-giving solutions to life's trickiest questions. Uh, so don't be an environmentalist. Be a Christian. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of this creation. Please, would you forgive us for failing to work it and to keep it? We pray that you would have mercy on our world, even as we await the hope of the new creation. As we wait, please teach us to care for creation in each of our own particular contexts. But above all, we thank you and we praise you for your son um, who died on a tree for us. In his name we pray. Amen.